by all accounts, they outdrew the National League in attendance by perhaps a margin of two to one. It was funny, it was the first and maybe only time in baseball history, every day in the newspapers or every week in the newspapers, they had next to the standings of the Players League or the National League, they had the attendance standings. In other words, who, which league and, and which teams were were getting the most most fans. And, and people were paying attention to that as much as they were the wins and losses. And by all accounts, the Players League drew so many more fans than the National League because the National League was dealing with a bunch of unknown players. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey now, what's going on, everybody? How you doing? My name's Tim. Tim Hanlon, that is. And I'm your uh, humble and congenial host for another episode of Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast devoted to, of course, what used to be in professional sports. And uh, I'm uh, just uh, delighted that you are uh, have come back and uh, put us in your uh, listening devices and in your earbuds or whatever method by which you inhale or engage with this content. Uh, we, uh, we appreciate it. Uh, we, uh, always look forward to uh, making it for you. And, um, hopefully today's episode is, uh, no different, uh, in terms of, uh, intrigue, uh, interest, and just a plain old curiosity fulfillment. And, uh, today it is in the sport of baseball. We're going back to the oldie times of baseball. And yet that said, if you sort of get put off by some of the more historical episodes that we do, uh, I would suggest you not uh, kind of give up too easily on this one. Uh, yes, it's uh, 1890 or so, and we're going back to the really the earliest days of uh, of baseball professionally here in this country. But uh, as we probably have been able to sort of determine or discern thus far in our various journeys over the last year and change, in many respects, a lot of the themes around teams and leagues, et cetera, that uh, are no longer with us. Uh, they seem to keep coming back around and around again. And it's the proverbial, those who ignore history are doomed uh, to repeat it. And um, the Players League of 1890 uh, is a very, how can I best put it, a very uh, uh, representative, I think, example of some of those issues uh, that frankly still exist today. Uh, in particular, the issue around the reserve clause, uh, certainly something not just uh, germane only to the sport of baseball, uh, but has been uh, something bedeviling uh, all of pro sports through much of its modern day uh, existences in the uh, 19th, the 20th, and the, now the 21st centuries. Uh, the idea, the notion that uh, players uh, have uh, have rights and can be uh, more in control of where their services uh, can be delivered and uh, and recompensed. Um, but, you know, that's not uh, necessarily always uh, the case as new leagues pop up. We've talked about centrally owned leagues uh, trying to keep costs down, uh, moving players or controlling player contracts. Uh, you could argue in uh, the many, many decades earlier in baseball's uh, life, the idea that uh, collusion uh, amongst various owners was uh, uh, in the air, so to speak, whether it was uh, unwritten or uh, unspoken. Uh, it was certainly very existent, and there have been a, a whole bunch of uh, things that have occurred in baseball, but also in other sports, 
that have been uh, tumultuous uh, and very disruptive on, and on a number of occasions with strikes and work actions, lockouts, and you name it. Um, the Players League of 1890 was certainly perhaps one of the first uh, significant, uh, shall we call them player revolts or rebellions against uh, the big bad owners and their restrictive ways. Uh, and uh, our conversation today is with author Bob Ross. No, not the guy from uh, the old PBS art show, uh, The Joy of Painting, although he would be he would have been a very interesting guest uh, in his own right, obviously not for sports, but uh, just like, for example, what was going on with that uh, that fro of his uh, and his constant cheery uh, attitude, uh, I guess something that uh, uh, was always uh, a curiosity to me when watching him in the old uh, the old PBS days back in the 70s. But uh, I digress. Bob Ross, today's Bob Ross, the guy who's written a book about the Players League, is a fascinating story. It's called The Great Baseball Revolt, The Rise and Fall of the 1890 Players League. And uh, if you have any interest in sort of how labor exists today, why players uh, get the kind of money they get today, how owners and players uh, have gotten along, or frankly, in many cases, have not gotten along over the many decades and centuries. Uh, this is a, a, a very uh, intriguing episode for you to listen to, learn from, and enjoy with our guest, Bob Ross, uh, the author of The Great Baseball Revolt, The Rise and Fall of the 1890 Players League. I uh, encourage you to listen uh, and enjoy that uh, in a couple of seconds. A couple of promo items uh, to get out of the way. I want to remind you that sportshistorycollectibles.com is absolutely the best place to find sports memorabilia of all kinds, shapes, and sizes from various teams and leagues that are no longer in existence, and frankly, a bunch of them that are, uh, but uh, perhaps are in different incarnations and whatnot. Give a look over at sportshistorycollectibles.com, and if you find something you really like, and I'm pretty sure you're going to find something of interest uh, that uh, you just might be on the fence about buying. Well, here's maybe a way to tip the scales uh, in your favor and, frankly, a little bit in our favor. Use the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. Why? Well, because you're going to get 15% off your purchases. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Use that promo code GOODSEATS and you will get, courtesy of our friend Dean Mitchell and the proprietor of SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, 15% off your purchases. Thank you to Dean. Thank you to SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And thank you for giving them a try. I think you'll enjoy them and uh, bookmark them and go back early and often, as they say. And I'm sure you're going to find some stuff, if not now, certainly later as uh, more inventory uh, and items come uh, come available. Again, sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code GOODSEATS. And of course, we want you to try an audiobook from Audible, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. It is free for one month and free, a free audiobook download. You're going to get that when you use the uh, the website, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Uh, audiobooks are awesome. 180,000 titles to choose from. You've heard this before. You can cancel at any time. Let me repeat that. You can cancel at any time. It's no risk. You will risk nothing. Give a listen to an audiobook. Try it out for yourself. Guaranteed you're going to find a book that's interesting to you. And uh, and try to, you know, give it a listen and, and get through it. And I believe... Once you're about halfway through the uh, the the, uh, the process, you're going to realize that uh, it's a wonderful way uh, to uh, to catch up on on all the reading that you've been meaning to do, but frankly, just don't have the time to do. But you can listen to, and um, and that's what uh, audiobooks are about. And Audible is by far uh, the best purveyor of such. And again, AudibleTrial.com/slash/GoodSeats is the place to go to give it a try for yourself. And again, get a free month's. Uh, subscription to the Audible service and 
most interestingly and most importantly, a free audiobook download of any of the 180,000 titles to choose from for you to listen to and to enjoy. Thanks for giving it a try. AudibleTrial.com slash GoodSeats. All right. Promotional banter is now complete. And now we move on to the fun and exciting part of our conversation with Bob Ross, author of The Great Baseball Revolt, The Rise and the Fall of the 1890 Players League. This is interesting stuff about baseball history coming up. Please enjoy. I'd love to sort of get a sense before we get into sort of the story and the book and all that stuff. Um, your background and or um, uh, how even this topic of the Players League in 1890 and baseball in general just crossed your radar altogether. Sure. Um, well, thanks again for for inviting me on to your show. I'm I'm a big fan and, and I actually have some requests for for teams that that I would love to, to see you cover, but maybe, maybe we can talk about that later. I love it. We take requests. This is awesome. We appreciate that. So happy to, happy to have that. But uh, first you got to give us a quality interview before we get to your request. So sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, well, I was a graduate student in the department of geography at Syracuse university. Um, let's see, I started there in 2003 and um, I been a lifelong baseball fan uh, as long as I can remember. I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan and recently uh, an adopted na um, National League Pittsburgh Pirates uh, adopted fan. I, I live in Pittsburgh now, so I enjoy going to those games. Um, but when I was in Syracuse, I was um, looking for a dissertation topic. I was studying economic geography, historical labor geography, and I went through a bunch of different possibilities. There was a brief time where I thought I was going to write a dissertation about the death industry, looking at funerals and um, crema crematories and all kinds of things. And I'm glad I did not stick with that. That would have been very depressing. Um, I, I thought about looking at the trucking industry. And basically, I wanted to look at an industry um, – from a political economy, geographic perspective, I was studying Marxist geography at the time with a wonderful professor named Don Mitchell. And um, kind of just not really being, I wasn't really able to find anything I liked. And then one day I was at home and I was looking through my old copy of Total Baseball, which I tend to do. And uh, I found one paragraph about the 1890 Players League, uh, this a uh, partially player-owned and operated league that lasted just one year. I had never heard of it before, um, and that really piqued my interest, and I Googled what I could. There wasn't a lot written about it, but there was enough to um, spur some, some further interest, and uh, I approached my advisor and said, well, what do you think if I wrote a dissertation about a 19th century baseball league? And he kind of looked at me funny and he said, well, if it's good and it's critical and it's well-researched, I don't see a problem with that. So I started researching uh, the Players League and um, I honestly enjoyed every minute of it. And, and I know that that's not most uh, graduate students' experience when they study a topic for a few years. I, I loved uh, researching it, writing about it, going to the Hall of Fame library in Cooperstown and um, other archives. So 
yeah, it was it was fantastic. And um, now that the book's been out for uh, almost two years now, um, I still enjoy um, reading about baseball history. Uh, I'm not currently doing any baseball history research, but um, yeah, it's a baseball is a, a great joy of mine um, as a casual fan and uh, also as a researcher. Well, you wouldn't be the first person to ever have been uh, caught uh, guilty of uh, of stealing some time, either to kill off time or uh, avoid other chores or uh, responsibilities in life by uh, uh, dreaming away in the uh, various pages of Total Baseball, for sure. <laughs> um, so what did you think about this league? Uh, what did you know of it before you kind of dove in head first into, into all of this? What were your impressions? What were your thinking? What was your understanding, I guess, before you got involved and then maybe take us on the journey as to how you became involved, sort of the, the process, I guess, to which you unearthed the story, which we'll eventually get to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what interested me first was um, the apparent, um, I don't want to say radical nature, because it wasn't radical, but, but it was a, I mean, it was a a labor-oriented league, a working, a self-titled working-class league, and that's debatable whether it actually was. But just the fact that it was this league made up of um, unionized baseball players who wanted to uh, share a greater portion of the value that they were creating, and and so as this young graduate student who was interested in Marxist theory and labor politics. Um, it was really exciting that that a, a a sport that I've loved my whole life had this long forgotten, buried um, chapter in in its history. So um, I, I had that sort of just general notion of the league when I when I started. Um, I didn't really know what had motivated the players. I, I honestly hadn't studied nineteenth century baseball at all. Um, I, you know, I watched Ken Burns' documentary a long time ago, but I didn't have any expertise in, in 19th century baseball um, or even really baseball history beyond just, you know, reading what I was interested in. Um, but I started digging into it, um, and I uh, started looking through old newspapers. Uh, I started um, figuring out where there were archives of primary source material, and I found that most of that stuff was in uh, Cooperstown uh, and also at the New York Public Library uh, in the Albert, Albert Spalding collection. Um, and just sort of like followed all the trails from there. I, I researched it for probably two or three years before I wrote the dissertation. And then after the dissertation, I a few years later, I did um, a couple more years of research and writing and, and ended up publishing the book in 2016. Well, it's interesting. It almost feels like it almost was maybe an advantage of not sort of being a, I guess, saber card carrying uh, uh, baseball researcher slash historian. Right. I mean, you're mm -hmm. it sounds like you were approaching this obviously from an academic perspective, which is one thing, but but more from an economics and, and labor and union kind of. Uh, background and 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 uh, uh, concept versus sort of the uh, the asterisk in baseball history and the stats and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I think you're right. And and I I was 
I hate to put it this way, but I was using the league to try to make some larger academic theoretical points about the relationship between economics and geography and um, you know labor and capital and 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 all that sort of thing. Um, but it was it was great to 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 embark on a research project like, like that where I'm also just massively interested as a fan in, in baseball history. But, but yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't one of those folks who could like answer trivia questions about the 1887 Cleveland teams backup shortstop you know, or even their starting shortstop. But, but to me, that's, that's especially interesting, right? Because <clears throat> frankly, a lot of the history around this, uh, this league uh, that you're, you're, you're talking about, or we're going to talk about, uh, and the lead up to it, and frankly, some of the legacy uh, issues, uh, although not necessarily um, fully understood and or remembered, right, actually are very, very important still today in this day and age when we get to things like the Reserve Club. I mean, at the end of the day, right, the, the National League of the of the 1880s, right, from which uh, this Players League uh, emanated from, a little bit of the American Association too, but it was really kind of, a, I think, a tableau, a story about um, the beginnings of what uh, professionalism, quote unquote, looked like in the sport of baseball, a relatively new idea at the time um, mm-hmm. and a struggle, I guess, to uh, figure out what a quote unquote business model was going to look like for a sport that was ostensibly until maybe 1880, really an amateur pursuit, right? Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think it, it went even beyond sports. It would, um the theater was becoming really popular then, um, and not just like high culture theater, but the theater as as something to do on on a Friday or Saturday night for ordinary folks. And the theater was also struggling with how do we make this profitable while also drawing upon extraordinarily talented uh, workers, that namely the actors. And it's so there was some like there were parallel developments going on with the theater, and and as I wrote about in the book. Some of the the players were deeply involved in the theater in one way or another, either as sort of part-time actors or, uh, as we'll uh, talk about with John Ward, he was married to one of the most famous actresses at the time. So I think it was this kind of problem or development in um, sort of the entertainment industry more generally of how can we professionalize this and to some extent mass produce it for large audiences uh, and 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 make money uh, at that. And, and, and it was a, a struggle and, and to some extent still is today. Yeah. I mean, um, and there, there are numerous examples, obviously the, the, uh, the arts, the entertainment industry, uh, advertising, a, a space that I've been in for a whole bunch of years, uh, professionally, right. It's sort of this, uh, collision, uh, and often inelegant collision between art and commerce. Mm-hmm. And I guess the art, I guess in this case, right. Is, uh, you know, a, a, a group of talented men, uh, you know, in a, in a sport that, um, uh, had some popularity and, uh, uh, was of interest to people to, to pay for and to watch, uh, and to enjoy. Um, and frankly, like a lot of, uh, uh, you know, artistic pursuits or entertainment businesses, if you will, or fledgling businesses, right. The, uh, the economics, right. Are, are clearly, uh, part of the mix, if not early on or in the earliest days, they certainly uh, make themselves manifest uh, relatively quickly when things get even more popular and people 
uh, show a propensity to pay for them. And I suspect that that maybe is, and we've heard this in some of our previous conversations, some of which you may have heard or, or not, not quite yet, um, around, you know, uh, I hear time and time again, and I whether it's a, a recent, you know, lead departed league or, or even in the past, um, there, there's one of the themes that keep echoing is that keeps echoing is uh, businessmen, uh, mm. most, mostly men, of course, mm-hmm. in this day and age. But 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 looking at this as there's something good here, people are willing to pay and or pay attention to it. What's the business here, and how can I maximize it? And I suspect that that was a relatively ragtag and uh, um, wild west, so to speak, in the years prior to. 1890 when uh, this players league actually came about yeah it 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 was and it was there was also a tension between folks who wanted to keep baseball in their eyes pure and by pure they meant uh, mostly an amateur game and some an amateur game for gentlemen Um, that's really where baseball had its origins in america as this kind of gentleman's sport where different clubs would play one another in the same way that, you know, rich folks go and play golf um, together today, maybe not super competitively or, or certainly not because of the money. Um, but as baseball became more popular, um, as you suggested, people um, discovered that people would pay to, to see these players play. And as the players started realizing, hey, they're paying to see us play, not to see my boss, um, send, send us out on the field. The players in the 1870s, um, late 1860s and 1870s really took a lot of control of the sport and would move from one team to another, sometimes, um, month to month. Um, if, if one team wouldn't pay them enough, they'd go to another team and that team would, um, give them a higher salary and then they'd move to another one. And it, it was really chaotic. Um, and players were the, the best players were making a good amount of money, but the owners couldn't figure out how they could capture these players and and keep them um, from just jumping uh, from from one team to another. And so, when the National League emerged in 1876, it soon developed, certainly within the first about five years of its existence, as the most successful and really the first successful means by which a group of owners, investors, um, could make money off of this very popular sport and um, basically increase revenues without increasing salary. So let's let's talk about that, and then we can maybe segue into into uh, the aforementioned John Montgomery Ward, who almost in many respects is a I say a microcosm, but almost as the emblematic, I guess, of of the, the player plight, I guess, uh, uh, mm-hmm. that that led up to, to 1890, which we'll eventually get to. But um, you know, so maybe you can give our audience a sense of uh, of how the owners uh, started to coalesce around uh, how they're they were approaching talent and and the cost economics of talent. And these franchises that they increasingly saw as true enterprises, um, maybe not, maybe a bit uncharted, but um, you know, if you can give our audience a sense of sort of how they approach sort of the cost input, so to speak, of these franchises, namely uh, the most expensive part, which is of course the players. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there were there were three general strategies that I, I discussed in the book that they used, and the first was um, they built these territorial monopolies, and what that meant is that in the league constitution, they said if there's a team in say Philadelphia, that team in Philadelphia can play no other team within a certain geographic uh, radius, and and what this did basically is um, it it put other teams either out of business who wanted to be in Philadelphia as well, for instance, or it put them kind of in a lesser league where they'd have to compete against other teams that, that were not in the national league. Um, and, and so it kind of created these monopolies in, in different big cities. And there, and there are some exceptions like, like Worcester, Massachusetts had a team for a little while, mostly based on just friendships between different businessmen who wanted to have see their friends in Worcester have a team. So that was the first strategy. The, the second strategy, something that um, a lot of owners took advantage of, but none more so than Albert Spaulding, and that is they figured out how to mass market this sport um, while still only having seven or eight or nine teams and uh, seven or eight or nine cities, and that was to sell merchandise uh, and sporting goods, especially, and to use the game of baseball that might be played in one particular place at a particular time to sell lots of baseballs and baseball bats and um, rudimentary gloves uh, to massive audiences. And so Spalding became very rich, not really directly from uh owning the Chicago National League uh, franchise, but from all his sporting goods that um, that, that he, had a, he had, he and his brothers had a, a worldwide empire of sporting goods. And then that money was filtered back into the league. But the third strategy that really was uh, the most directly relevant to the emergence of the, the Players League and, and probably the most powerful one was that they the owners of the National League figured out how to keep the players in place Literally, um, they created what is called the reserve rule, meaning uh, that teams initially would have a select number of players that they reserved uh, on their team. That they um, all of the te- all the owners agreed, you know, no one else can go after this guy, this guy, and this guy. Um, I mean, it's kind of like, like I'm in a fantasy baseball league, and we are in a, what's called a keeper league. So. Um, people I draft uh, t- this year, I get to keep next year and, and forever if I want to. Um, that's sort of how uh, baseball operated in the 1880s and all the way up until the 1970s, with the exception of the Players League, which we'll get into in a moment. Um, but eventually, by the early 1880s, all players on all teams were reserved, meaning that once you were on New York um, or on Buffalo or Chicago or whatever team, you had no choice but to stay there unless your owner decided to sell you uh, to another team. And then you had no choice but to go to the other city. And so players resented this uh, for two reasons. One, um, they didn't like to be bought and sold. Um, The players used quite explicit language about how they felt like cattle or they felt like slaves um, they felt like they were just property that was being shipped around. Um, and two, they recognized very quickly that without the ability of 
to put teams in competition with one another for their services, their salaries went down. Um, basically, the, the league figured out that they could pay the players as just as much as possible that it would uh, keep the players in baseball. So, you know, they wouldn't pay them as much as a carpenter would make, for example, because then the players might say, well, you know, to heck with baseball, I'm, I'm going to be a carpenter. But um, they would pay them just enough to, to stay in baseball, but, but no more, really. Um, and this was implemented um, in various ways, and it, it saw different forms um, by the mid-1880s or, or toward the late 1880s. The National League started um, grading the players, not just on-field habits, but off-field habits as well. You know, whether they were a drinker or they were a womanizer or they cursed a lot. Which is probably, you, which I think is about everybody at that point. <laughs> it's, it seemed that way, yeah. Uh, and they used those grades then to say, well, therefore you only get $1,500 a year instead of $2,000 a year. Um, so the, the, the players on the one hand, we're really fed up with this. But on the other hand, this made baseball extraordinarily profitable. Um, it enabled the National League to put a very fine product on the field in these beautiful ballparks um, for, for fans that were flocking in increasing numbers to the games. So you had this contradiction of increasing profitability and increasing um, resentment and anger uh, among the players. Yeah, that's uh, that's very. And I think it's probably also important to remember or, or to, to highlight here, uh, based on my my research, which is a hell of a lot more crack and uh, amateur than perhaps yours. But uh, the idea that um, even with this uh, uh, restraining kind of uh, constrictor, shall we say, uh, by the owners around the, the players and sort of keeping them in check and or in line, um, it was still uh, the profession of baseball. Uh, whether you thought it was a noble pursuit professionally or not, which I know was another sort of side issue, uh, was a pretty good remunerative one uh, for those who were qualified and good enough to play, right, relative to the average worker doing other things and other careers at that time, I think. Yeah, definitely. And so these these players were, I, I did the uh, calculations when I wrote the book, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, they were making in, if you adjusted for inflation, like between maybe 50000 and $250,000 a year in today's dollars. Um, and actually those figures are probably a little different because that was a few years ago when I calculated that. So they were not impoverished by any stretch of the imagination. Um, they were doing fine. Uh, in some respects, they were wealthy, um, but not obscenely wealthy like today's athletes. Uh, you know, they were Many of the players had to take second jobs in the off season, um, and then if you know if they were injured, um, they would have their pay deducted. Uh, so there wasn't much insurance. There certainly wasn't any pension plan. So they they had a precarious, relatively precarious, uh, yet relatively comfortable uh, existence as as players. And they were they were celebrities uh, to a certain extent, and um, you know they weren't. And this is in the in the midst of, you know, the 1880s when there were major labor campaigns going on. People were still working in factories and coal mines and had jobs that were um, tremendously more difficult and dangerous than playing baseball for a living. But the players still saw themselves as 
working men. Uh, they saw themselves as exploited. Uh, they saw themselves as part of a class of workers um, that was pitted against a class of capitalists, as, as, as they saw it in, in their language. Um, and, and they thought just as any other working man deserves um, as much pay as they can get, as much value as they cre create, uh, they do as well. Um, and they also saw that baseball was making a, a tremendous amount of money and they thought to themselves, you know, why is it the owners that are keeping this when it is us who are the reason that people come out to, to see baseball games? Well, let's let's uh, let's let's segue into uh, Monty Ward, uh, formerly known as John Montgomery Ward or John mm -hmm. Ward, uh, uh, because he's in many respects, I think, uh, almost a personification of uh, this, uh, shall we say, growing collective angst, perhaps, uh, mm -hmm. amongst the players. Um, and he's an interesting cat. I, we don't need to necessarily go into his his uh, uh, his his statistics and his background. And, and, and obviously, he's a member of the Hall of Fame and all that kind of stuff. Uh, quite, quite a great player. Um, but he almost it's 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 very interesting because circa 1885, right, uh, which, as you saw in my notes, I put an exclamation point next to uh, <laughs> somewhat of a renaissance man in that mm -hmm. uh, in the midst of being one of the better players of his day. He's graduating from Columbia Law School. <laughs> yeah. uh, not not a, 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 an easy sort of feat, I would imagine. Um, but uh, why? You know, so I think that's obviously crucial, though, to uh, the importance of Ward. Uh, amongst what you just described, and perhaps uh, using that that legal education, uh, almost almost as a uh, dare I say a, as a, a, a an inaugural or, or initial patron saint of unionization. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's that's definitely a good way of putting it. Certainly for for the sport of baseball, he was the the reason or the the primary reason that. A union was created in the first place, and he was this—he was such an interesting character. Um, he was universally respected and liked. I mean, the, you never would read an owner saying a bad word about him, even in the midst of the the players' league struggle when other folks within baseball weren't talking to one another, or they were just every day lambasting one another in the, in the press. But everyone loved John Ward. Uh, I, I can't even think of a a contemporary example of someone who would be as, as equally well-respected. Uh, he was this gentleman. He was well-spoken. He was well-educated. He was also a self-made man. It, it was, he has such an interesting life. He, he grew up in, in Belfont, um, Pennsylvania, near State College, and he, he went to Penn State, um, which was then sort of more of a boarding school, high school, and he was actually kicked out of Penn State for stealing chickens um, from the, the neighboring farm. But then he figured out how to get back on his feet, started playing baseball. And once he was in New York playing uh, in the National League for the, the team that would eventually be called the Giants, yeah, he enrolled in, in Columbia. Why not get a law degree while you're uh, playing professional baseball as one of the best baseball players? Um, and so, yeah, he, he could – he also wrote um, – he wrote a book about baseball while he was a player. He – uh, often wrote articles in uh, the newspapers and magazines of the day. And, uh, you know, he had just everyone's attention, really. People would um, people would listen to what he had to say. They'd read what he wrote. 
and the the players um, really followed his lead. Uh, I, I don't think I've read anything that uh, any any player has ever said negative about about him. Um, so he was this um, perfect leader and perfect ambassador for baseball, um, and it, he really threw a curve. Um, that that's that's sort of a, a, a a cheap pun, but he threw a curve literally and figuratively into the National League in terms of this um, being a representative of the players against the wishes of the owners. Because if if the players hadn't had a, a leader such as Ward, the, the National League may have had an easier time saying, "Well, you're all a bunch of drunks, and you're you know uneducated. You don't know what you're talking about." But because Ward kind of led the players um, into their their first union, which we can talk about, and then into the Players League, it was more difficult for the National League to um, combat the the players' interests, at least in the press, um, because they had to show respect for Ward. Um, there was there was no way around it. I, mean, I guess I, I don't know. Like I, I really, I'm trying to think of any player recently or, or, or currently who has that kind of respect and um, I, I, I don't know maybe like Michael Jordan or someone like that um, uh, yeah but, but it's, yeah it's also it's also not just a, you know as a player and, and the respective managers and, and fellow players but obviously it's also you know that with uh, I guess a respect according uh, accorded to uh, intelligence and leadership skills and and maybe thinking sort of longer term and strategically versus sort of you know, being a champion and or a general on the field, so to speak, in, in the, the heat of play and battle. Um, mm-hmm. But so, all right, maybe, uh, uh, and and by the way, uh, you kids out there, if you didn't sort of catch that sort of double entendre there, uh, uh, there by many accounts, uh, uh, Ward was uh, is credited, although I'm sure it's hotly debated in the Sabre circles, and it's not for me to say. I, I'm not a Sabre, you know, baseball stats geek i just play one on television right but he um you know he's widely credited with uh either inventing or perfecting or advancing the uh the art of the curveball uh and um so so that's literally the part but figuratively um you know maybe it's uh it's it's time to sort of get into uh the lead up to uh this thing called uh the brotherhood uh of professional baseball players which uh, ostensibly, uh, by my understanding, was the mechanism by which uh, Ward, uh, the players, and then ultimately uh, this uh, this this breakaway league um, kind of uh, put things in motion, so to speak, to shall we say push the issue that we've been uh, talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the Brotherhood of Professional Baseball Players was the first union uh, in in baseball history, and it. Uh, formed in 1885, initially by the players on the, the New York Giants. Uh, Ward was chief among them. Um, all of the players on the Giants joined this union. It was secret at first. And so they organized uh, other players, often on the ball fields. So a runner gets on first base, and the first baseman for New York uh, would talk to the runner about it. Uh, they'd go to the saloons after the game and, and, and talk about the union They'd have secret meetings in Cleveland or in Chicago. Um, and little by little, uh, they got most of the players in the National League uh, in 
by 1886 to to join this union. When they finally um, published published their their existence, when they they went public as a union, the National League refused to recognize them. Uh, they wouldn't meet with them. Um, but the union really just wanted um, they wanted to be recognized. They wanted to. Um, one of the biggest issues initially was to not be bought or sold. Um, they didn't want a salary cap. They didn't want to be reserved. Um, it was it, initially at least a, a relatively modest um, set of goals. They certainly weren't calling for a brand new league that would be fundamentally different than the National League. Uh, they were um, recognized themselves as ambassadors of the game, and so they had a strict moral conduct code that they asked players to follow, which of course not all of them did, but um, they were, um, despite all that, they were they were really ignored by the National League and, and kind of just the National League owners just turned their nose up on them and, and um, hoped that they would go away, which, which they didn't, at least not, not for a while. So was it, was there was there some placation though, uh, or placating of of this union by the league members, uh, the league owners, uh, or was it truly a dismissal and or don't bother us and we don't take you seriously? Well, as time went on in the eighteen eighties, um, first there was I guess you could call it placation. They would agree to meet with them, um, or they'd say, "Well, it's July. Let's let's meet in November." And, um, so they'd agree to meet in November and then by November, the national league owners would have already issued their contracts for the next year. So any meeting with the union would be sort of useless or sometimes they'd get a little concession here and there. Um, but basically the national league, um, was just trying to, if they couldn't get rid of them, um, just make them irrelevant. And so there was, um, there was a sense among the players by, uh, 1888, 1889, that, and really even as, as early as 1887, that the National League's not going to take us seriously. Um, our owners aren't interested in bargaining with us or doing any sort of negotiations. So we're going to have to start perhaps taking things into our own hands. Well, it seems though, and again, I'm just, I'm going through sort of, you know, historical points, uh, along the, uh, uh, you know, the years here. Um, and I, obviously if I'm, if I'm incorrect, I, I'm happy to be, um, to be, uh, to be corrected, but, um, it almost feels like in 1888 or so, and I, and I'll, again, baseball historians will know that the, uh, the New York giants of the national league, uh, at that time, uh, won the, um, not only the national league pennant, but the, I guess the de facto were the precursor to what is now the world series. And there's a debate about that, but they beat the American associations, uh, St. Louis Browns, their champion, uh, in that sort of, uh, I guess they call it the uh, the Dovre Cup, which is actually ironically named after uh, Ward's wife, as as hinted at earlier. But mm-hmm. um, it almost feels like that uh, the owners uh, kind of perhaps picked the wrong guy to kind of push the issue because um, the Giants, the owners, uh, sold uh, or attempted to sell uh, Mr. Ward to the Washington Nationals. Again, this is coming off of a championship. Uh, banner season with some great players and, and Ward among them. Um, so I, 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 it, taking that as assumed fact, um, is there, based on your knowledge, was there a, a reason why Ward 
in particular was uh, being sold uh, in the offseason? Uh, was it maybe a signal to be sent uh, because of his um, uh, stirring up, I guess, uh, and the creation or helping create the Brotherhood? Or was this just an example of uh, the overall horse trading that was going on in the league in general? Those are good questions. Uh, I don't know if there's a definitive historical answer to them. Um, Ward was certainly getting mixed signals. Um, the 1888-1889 offseason was very interesting. Um, Albert Spaulding decided that um, he wanted to promote the game of baseball internationally. And so he rounded up a group of players, Ward included, to take a tour, what initially was called the Australian tour, um, where they first traveled across the United States together um, and then took a boat to Hawaii and then to uh, some Pacific islands and ended up going to Egypt. Uh, I think they went to Greece uh, to basically to promote uh, or ostensibly to promote the, the game of baseball, but really to promote Spalding sporting goods. And Spalding invited Ward and many of the, the, the top brotherhood leaders on this trip. And all along, Spalding is buddy-buddy with Ward. He's saying, you know, we're going to work something out. Things are going to be fine. And at one of their stops, I think it might have, may have been in Egypt, somehow the, the players got a hold of uh, a newspaper um, from, from back in the United States where they learned – um, not just of Ward's impending sale to Washington, but that the um, the National League had instituted this classification scheme that that I was talking about earlier, where they, the players would be graded on their on the field and off the field behavior. They learned that there was going to be a new salary cap um, on the players, where it would depress many of the players' salary to a maximum of I think two thousand dollars a year. Um, so all of this had happened while the players are literally on the other side of the world, um, promoting or helping Albert Spalding promote his, his sporting goods industry. And so Ward is livid and the players are livid. Um, they, Ward at least, um, gets off the boat, finds a way to come home. Um, and they begin, uh, planning in secret then, um, not just a, a strike, although they talked about that possibility in, in 1889, a, a, a player strike. But they started planning for something altogether different, a whole new enterprise that would, they hoped, leave the National League um, really in the dust. Yeah, so that was, you sort of answered a bit of my, my next question was, wouldn't a strike action be the most logical and perhaps most easily achieved uh, uh, activity versus what ultimately Ward wound up working towards, which was actually literally uh, a a separate uh, bolt from league in direct competition. Yeah, so there was a lot of debate among the the Brotherhood members of of whether to strike. They talked about striking on the Fourth of July. Uh, the Fourth of July was usually the most attended um, set of games all season. Uh, every team would play a doubleheader, a double admission doubleheader, and crowds would be beyond capacity. 
and the players talked about possibly striking on the 4th of July, which would have been a huge financial hit to the National League, certainly would have gotten a message across to the National League. But for reasons in particular that we don't know yet, because we don't um, we don't know all of the conversations that were going on um, among the players, they decided, let's not have a strike, let's do something even bigger, and that was to create a whole new league, uh, which, which turned out to be the, the Players League. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's, uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now. Uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and, interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also uh, in my queue, next up uh, is another guest that I'd like to get, uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, a wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis, uh, the Major Indoor Soccer League with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. So it, it seems to me that 1889, the season of 1889, right, the season before this Players League is launched, um, would be almost. Uh, and I, you know, again, I'd love to go deeper. And if the if the records and or the uh, uh, anecdotes or whatever don't exist, I mean, you know, uh, it, I hear Hollywood calling. Um, <laughs> you know, you you have to wonder because just as a point of fact, right, 1889, uh, the Giants and Ward still performing. He came back and played. Right, and they still and they won again. Then they they duplicated their efforts from '88. Uh, they uh, they won the National League title and then the uh, that uh, quote unquote World Series title once again. Um, but you gotta wonder, 
um, what it was like, you know, behind the scenes and or clandestinely, if that's a word, uh, or in a clandestine mm-hmm. manner, uh, what Ward and his fellow brotherhood slash players and other folks perhaps helping them through that process, how they were sort of, quote unquote, by day playing baseball and, you know, working for the man, so to speak, yet all the while, obviously, in process, uh, trying to figure out what they were going to do and how to achieve it, uh, ultimately, uh, in the next year of 18 and 90. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And you're right. I wish I wish uh, someone would make a movie about this because all along, while well, all of this is happening that you just mentioned, John Ward's um, celebrity marriage is starting to break apart. Uh, he was married to Helen Dovre, one of the more famous actresses at the time. Everyone knew who she was. Everyone knew who he was. You know, this was a, a true celebrity marriage. And Ward was having an affair with a, uh, I believe she was about 17 years old, um, a neighbor of his. And um, this got out into the press. Dovre left him. Um, Ward got into a fight with the another man who was with this young woman. I mean, it was just had all of the elements of, of Hollywood drama. Um, whilst also he's playing great baseball and organizing a new league, um, to, uh, to rival the national league. So it was, it was a very exciting, interesting time, um, in, in baseball and in New York life, especially this was Ward was living in New York at the time. And so all this drama is in the, the New York papers and, um, Hollywood, yeah. uh, if you're listening, Hollywood, you know, one of the books then you need to option uh, is called The Great Baseball Revolt, The Rise and the Fall of the 1890 Players League by our guest, Bob Ross. You're, you know, here it is. Uh, we only, you know, I, I'll, I'll take a, a small percentage or maybe just a credit in the movie, but <laughs> just get in touch and we'll get we'll get you in touch with Bob. Because, I mean, look, that it, yeah, I agree. I mean, you got to think, I mean, given that too, all that other distraction and stuff. But I, I got, I, because of his... Um, uh, because of his fame, right, and either as part of his marriage or just on his own, it seems to me that um, that was a conduit uh, or an entree into uh, some folks of uh, of wealth and deep pockets to uh, aid and abet uh, this uh, brotherhood uh, dream, I guess, of uh, what ultimately became another another league. No, yeah, it definitely seems that way. I mean. Dovre herself, at least while she was still married to, to Ward, um, you know, could have been a source of, of, of money. She was certainly um, quite wealthy um, from, from her acting. And um, she actually, she donated um, this, what was called the Dovre Cup, uh, which was, I believe, made out of pure silver, a, a trophy um, for the National League um, uh, champions to 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 have uh, I think it was she started doing this in 1885 or 86. Ward was connected to um, not just her but other folks in the theater, and um, other players were connected to some um, folks like Albert Johnson and and Cleveland was a uh, a wealthy business tycoon made a lot of money in the railroad uh, industry and he was a big f- friend and and fan of of the players cause. So yeah, the players, um, some of the, particularly the, the more famous and, um, more successful players had been rubbing elbows with politicians, with wealthy people in each of their respective cities. Uh, so this was, um, certainly gave 
the players um, the idea and, and the reality that you know maybe they could could start up a, a whole new league uh, to to rival the National League. Well, uh, indeed, that's what happened, and I guess um, maybe this is a, a good uh, next step in the in the conversation to kind of get us into. Uh, the months just prior and the beginnings of uh, the 1890 season when this Players League uh, actually launches. There's eight, eight teams. you got teams in Boston and Brooklyn and New York, uh, the Chicago Pirates, uh, Philadelphia Athletics, the Pittsburgh Burgers, real original name, yeah. the Cleveland Infants, and the Buffalo Bisons. Um, maybe uh, a little bit of, uh, I don't know, scene setting for maybe how this league sort of was announced and or uh, what the quality of play was. And um, it seems like uh, a, a good, hefty portion of the top talent in the National League uh, bolted to uh, bring their services to this uh, brand new spanking Players League in 1890. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so throughout the 1889 season, there were rumors that this plans for this league were going to happen and eventually by the end of the season, the players just flat out publicized, we are creating this new league called the Players National League of Professional Baseball Clubs, not to be confused with the National League of Professional Baseball Clubs. And they announced that it would be um, partially owned by the players themselves. So the teams would be owned by player stockholders and um, what they were calling backers or investors. Um, the players would share in the governance of the league. So the, um, I guess you could call it a board of directors, would be equally represented by players as with these financial investors. And the players would um, have contracts uh, for a limited amount of time, sometimes one year, two years, five years, not too different to what we have today. Um, and after their contracts expired, they could um, put themselves on the market and play for another team. And so this was the way the Players League um, tried to do away with the reserve clause. Um, but also they saw this as a compromise because this was different than the 1870s uh, where players had no contracts at all. They would play two weeks with one team and then play with another team if they gave them enough money. And so Ward argued that this actually will bring stability to baseball while also while also being fair to to the players um so they put teams in almost every city where there was a national league club um there was no national league club in buffalo but the players wanted a team there mostly out of respect to a couple players who lived there and didn't want to move um and they also announced that they would have uh, competing schedules. So whenever the National League um, Pittsburgh team would play, the Players League Pittsburgh team would play. Um, likewise in Philadelphia and New York. And so basically they um, left it up to fans to decide which game are you going to see. Are you going to see the National League game or the Players League game? You couldn't, couldn't go to both, uh, at least not on, on the same day. Um, and so the, the biggest challenge initially in the 1889-90 offseason was to find enough investors uh, in each city who would pay the initial startup costs uh, of building new ballparks because um, they had to build brand new, uh, at the time, state-of-the-art ballparks, which were actually quite beautiful and ornate. 
um, they had to find just land in these cities where they could build the ballparks in the first place. And most importantly, they had to sign the players um, to and, and convince the players that they weren't breaking the law um, to uh, not play for their National League club in 1890, that they could essentially leave that contract and, and sign a new contract with the Players League. And so both the National League and the Players League uh, went to great lengths to sign um, sign players. And, and there, it was often this wild goose chase across the country, um, you know, into the most remote parts of, of the wilderness at the time to find players. I mean, literally, I mean, there was a, a case where some one of the players went out hunting in, um, I think it was out in California, somewhere near the Bay Area, and um, you had representatives from the National League and representatives from the Players League looking through the woods to find this player to give him the contract. Um, but eventually the Players League signed the vast majority of National League players to the Players League. So the 1890 season really saw most of the players who had been in the National League in 1889 now in the Players League in 1890. Um, so if you were a fan of the world champion New York Giants in 1889 who had been in the National League, most likely you would be then a fan of the 1890 Players League New York Giants because it was basically the the same team. And that, that was pretty similar uh, across baseball. Uh, players were, the National League lost most of its players. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And you also have to wonder um, what it was like sort of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, in the marketplace, right, to to see these two leagues uh, battling against each other, I guess, in terms of publicity and uh, trying to come to the games, obviously, the directly competitive. I, I didn't realize that uh, the Players League, but I, I can understand it now, right, is to, to really kind of almost go for the jugular and go directly competitive and say, you know, look, this is uh, the your, your best players are now competing against you, National League. And, um, and it's interesting, too, I guess, that Ward, you know, having been part of the uh, – uh, of the uh, the two-time champion New York National League Giants, uh, didn't go to the New York Giants of the Players League, but uh, was part of a team in Brooklyn instead, nicknamed or maybe fully named the uh, Ward's Wanderers. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead, I, I, I'm curious as to why that was the case, but um, um, you know, I don't know if you know the answer to that. But uh, that it's clear that he uh, had some uh, fame and uh, notoriety, or or uh, at least. Um, uh, uh, you know, known in the marketplace, right? So to be able to do that and almost uh, bring his personality uh, to a team, uh, perhaps out of a whole cloth. Yeah, and actually there's um, a really interesting recent development in the Players League. And by recent, I mean within the last few months, um, someone discovered a treasure trove of documents related to the Players League. Um, that This was just... Um, announced, I think, in October or November of 2017. Uh, somebody was um, cleaning out an old house in upstate New York, and they found a whole box of contracts, letters, documents related to the Players League, and then they just auctioned them off about a month ago. One of those documents was um, a lease for what was called Brotherhood Park in New York, which actually became what is known as the Polo Grounds, uh, where Willie Mays played and Giants played for, for many decades. And on that lease, uh, Ward signed his signature. 
And so what this tells us is that um, Ward initially intended to play and be a partial owner of the New York 1890 Players League team. But uh, presumably because the Brooklyn Players League team didn't have the star talent, the, the, um, the celebrity uh, that some of the other teams did, Ward agreed to play for, for Brooklyn uh, kind of at the last minute. So, um, so yeah, Ward was supposed to play, continue playing with his New York teammates in 1890, but uh, he moved to Brooklyn um, really to, to kind of anchor that team and, and give, give them a, a recognized superstar. Cause most of the other players on Brooklyn that year were, they were good, but they were not, um, you know, famous all-stars, superstars like, like Ward was. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's, see, that's fascinating on a number of different levels. And by the way, you know, uh, uh, Ward, uh, maybe perhaps, um, it was interesting because uh, the, the, uh, Brooklyn Ward's wonders, uh, had actually, uh, uh, were, um, finished uh, in second, uh, just, uh, just ahead of the New York Giants, uh, in the final tally of the mm-hmm. when it came to the standing. So, uh, it kind of shows you, you wonder if Ward had been part of the Giants, if, uh, they perhaps could have been in first and, and, and knocked out the Boston Reds in that process. Um, but that's uh, that's neither here nor there. I am really interested, though, in um, how the league did. I mean, it seems like that uh, the play on the field was pretty darn good. Uh, mm-hmm. I saw in a footnote somewhere that there were there was a period of time, a couple of weeks, that there were actually seven triple plays. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it seems like there was some really uh, good play, but um, – and, and they did well at the gate as well, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, they outdrew the National League in attendance um, by perhaps a margin of two to one. Um, it was funny, it was the first and maybe only time in baseball history, every day in the newspapers or every week in the newspapers, they had next to the standings of the Players League or the National League, they had the, um, the attendance standings. Um, in other words, who, which league and, and which teams were, were getting the most, most fans and, and people were paying attention to that as much as they were the wins and losses. And by all accounts, um, the players league drew so many more fans than nationally because the national league was dealing with a bunch of unknown players by and large. They had to recruit players from the lesser, what we would call today, the minor league teams, um, to find just to to fill out a roster sometimes so the the players league had a better product on the field they had newer ballparks which by all accounts were also more comfortable better looking um more stylish um and and certainly newer um and and the play yeah was great they they had um lots of exciting games there were great defensive plays which was i think kind of a bigger deal then than it is now. Um, now, you know, we're impressed by home runs and maybe, you know, 98 mile per hour fastballs. Then defense was, was really celebrated. And that was part of Ward's popularity is that he was a terrific shortstop um, as well as, well, he was a pitcher initially and then turned into a shortstop. Um, and there was great base running, which was also a very important part of the game. Uh, home runs weren't that important. And in fact, one of the interesting things that I learned while doing this research is, particularly when I was reading newspaper accounts about the new ballparks that the Players League created, one of the um, 
selling points that the reporters would, would mention about a lot of the ballparks is they'd say things like, the outfield is so big, they're certainly not to lose any balls um, from home runs. Um, you know, in other words, like, come see baseball here because you won't see home runs. <laughs> Which, you know, they weren't, home runs were not as, um, I mean, they certainly weren't as common. And, and they weren't, um, it wasn't what people came to see. They came to see defense and, and good base running, um, clever play. And, and the, by all accounts, the, the Players League had that. Um, and this was despite a... Um, uh, a shaky beginning of the season in terms of weather. It was unseasonably cold through much of the, the Northeast in 1890. It rained a lot. Uh, so that depressed um, attendance figures a little bit, presumably. And, you know, it just made the play a little bit weaker across baseball, whatever league you're a part of, just because the fields would be muddy um, and, and the players were cold. But what, about around June and the end of May, the weather... Um, got a lot warmer and once that was once they were in the clear in terms of the weather um the the players league ballparks filled up and the national league ballparks were sometimes near empty like pittsburgh play the game they're debating uh accounts of this some people have said that there were as few as 18 people at this one game i could only find a record of as, as little as 150 people but um, in any case, uh, the, the National League was, was losing uh, lots of money um, and, and certainly more than the, the Players League was. So, so given the, um, given the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the positive uh, vibes and uh, play and attendances and, and the players, uh, the quality players in the Players League, uh, given that uh, that was going on, why did it, uh, why did it not succeed? past 1890 season it's a great question um and uh, lots of people have had different hypotheses about this um what i concluded um just through the the evidence that i found in in the newspapers and the records of uh some of the teams is that simply the investors who backed the players league clubs were impatient. <laughs> they, to put it simply, they wanted to make money right away, and they most of the, all the teams except for Boston did not make a profit um, the first year, mostly because they had to shell out a lot of money to build the ballparks in the first place. Um, if if you took out the costs of building the ballparks. Um, the Boston team at least would have made a profit somewhere near, um, I think about $40,000, which at that time was, would have been one of the most profitable, um, baseball teams, single season baseball teams and, and baseball history at the time. Um, but most of the, or all of the teams had to deal with this big initial cost and the investors wanted to make money right away. And so they dropped their um, purported ideological allegiance to the players' cause and said to the National League owners, how about we just combine our, our teams? So why have a New York National League team and a New York Players team, League team? Why don't we just have one? And just one by one, each, each of the um, Players' League clubs 
um, investors just kind of dropped out um, and, and, and combined with the National League forces. And they did this largely behind the backs of the players. I mean, it was a really big betrayal um, of, the, uh, of the players by the, by the owners. Um, also, there were, there were a couple players who were um, operating as spies. Um, Buck Ewing was one of the Players League players who all along had been secretly feeding information to the National League um, telling them, you know, the financial records and, and that sort of thing. Um, so but it really... You're saying there was espionage then. There were, there were, there were uh, moles, if you will, within the Players League, huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and it, there were, you know, secret um, backroom uh, meetings. Like uh, there's this story about um, Buck Ewing being led up um, all the way up to Upper Manhattan and then into the Bronx to this secret uh, kind of clubhouse back of a saloon full of cigar smoke where he met with the owners to secretly share this information. Um, so yeah, and, and, and the players never forgave him for that. Uh, that was something that um, they, they really never forgave him for it. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really, it was a surprise to the players because by the end of the 1890 season, they knew that they, had the better, more attractive product on the field. The Players League, after the season ended, purchased um, a few of the um, people involved in the Players League purchased the Cincinnati Club from the National League, which was one of the most profitable uh, clubs in the National League. So th they saw this as a big coup. Everything was in place for um, the Players League to go forward. And, and, you know, in their eyes, perhaps they could have put the National League out of business. Um, but the Players League investors um, didn't want to battle, continue to battle with the National League. Didn't, they didn't want to continue to compete with them. They wanted to get their money back more quickly. So many of them just sold out to the uh, National League. Others just combined forces. And by January, or yeah, about January of 1891, the Players League had folded, um, which which came as a a surprise to a lot of people and um, a, a source of, of deep uh, anger and sadness for, for the players, especially John Ward. I mean, John Ward was just absolutely devastated that this project that he had put so much of his life into um, had just collapsed all, almost all of a sudden. Do you sense that uh, some of the backers of the Players League, the financial backers, um, some or all of them or, or, or a, a couple of them, uh, had foresight uh, that they ultimately would benefit somehow, even if this league sort of didn't go much further than a couple of seasons, that they ultimately would be made whole and then some by somehow forcing uh, a sale or a merger or something with the National League, uh, almost to the point maybe where some of, maybe even some of the National League owners helped prop up some of those uh, things, or am I just putting its conspiracy theory in the mix? No, that's a good question. I mean, there's certainly some of the Players League backers um, said later that you know they had visions of millions of dollars when they started out. Um, how they were going to get those millions of dollars, they didn't exactly detail, but that that's quite possible. I mean, I think I think above everything else, like they were businessmen, they were investors, they were looking to make money, and even though in the 1889, 1890 off season, they 
publicize their participation in the Players League as if it were kind of this noble charitable cause, like, oh, I believe in the 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 players struggle and and they deserve this and et cetera, et cetera. You know, it was a it was a it was a business endeavor for them. And I mean you could argue that to the extent that the National League was a relatively exclusive club of baseball owners, maybe some of the Players League owners felt like, oh, this maybe could be my way into that club by um, first getting involved in the Players League and then getting into the National League that way. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable hypothesis. Yeah, and I think that's only – the only reason I throw that out is is just uh, uh, informed by some of the conversations that we've had uh, over the the many months of – you know, we're talking about things even more recent, but uh, challenger leagues, whether it be the AFL in football or the USFL in football or uh, the WHA in hockey or, or uh, the ABA, certainly in, in, in basketball, right? These are, you know, it's one thing to challenge and, uh, uh, you know, uh, disrupt sort of the status quo, uh, open up markets. But it's also sort of, as we see, a theme uh, for certain members uh, behind the scenes that, you know, there's sort of this uh, in uh, this thinking that uh, in some way, shape, or form, uh, if we're successful for at least a period of time, uh, that we're able we'll be able to sort of uh, get ourselves into uh, the this exclusive club and uh, and profit and succeed and and uh, and and win in the process. Uh, so it almost feels a, like a rudimentary on some levels uh, beginnings or early version of that in the uh, in 1890 1891. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And in regardless of the intentions of the owners, the Players League owners, it at least set an example that this apparent monopoly that is the National League could be challenged and could be successfully challenged. And so I think actually, even though the initial um, legacy of the, the Players League was that the National League returned to power even stronger than before, and the, the American Association went out of business very soon after the Players League folded. And the National League had really sole supremacy over baseball for a time. It wasn't that long later, um, about a decade later, that the American League was formed. Um, and I think what the Players League demonstrated is that there was room for a league like the American League um, there were opportunities um, for at least, if not long-term, short-term gain for people who might um, compete with, with the National League. And, of course, the Federal League, um, about 15 years uh, after the, um, the American League, emerges as a rival league to, to the National League. And so, yeah, I think the, the Players League certainly um, was instructive in that, in that regard for um, investors who wanted to make money that you didn't have to, as, as you said, and as you're illustrating with your, your show and so many other different sports, you don't have to get into the big league, the major league, um, necessarily to, um, to start making money off of, off of the sport. All right. Well, as we round third base and, and head to home in our mm-hmm. interview here, uh, not to strain an analogy, but um, why don't um, maybe you can give us a little bit of uh, your perspective as to uh, the legacy, perhaps, of this league. Uh, it's clear, right, that uh, not only in baseball, but sports generally, uh, this issue of the player 
uh, as labor, so to speak, uh, versus um, oftentimes uh, different perspectives and or motivations of quote unquote management. Uh, these are issues that are about as modern and current uh, as they were uh, oddly back in the day. Um, have things gotten better or worse? Uh, do you, are there any sort of learnings and or um, things that can be taken from uh, this very interesting chapter in baseball that are either, you know, that are applicable today or perhaps being ignored? Uh, as they say, people who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what are your what are your what is your takeaway uh, vis-a-vis today's modern game? Uh, it, it seems to me like there are some issues that are just as relevant as they were back then. I, I think so. I, I think there's a lot of relevance um, still today, and I think it stretches beyond sports. I mean, I I wrote this in the first place um, in part motivated just by the idea that workers deserve to be paid for the value that they create. Uh, that workers um, need to struggle for that uh, t- that value, and um, and that's true whether you're a carpenter or a baseball player or a professor or a radio broadcaster or whatever it might be. There's always going to be this struggle between um, the workers and the bosses, and who who gains control of the revenue that that the workers create. Uh, so I think it's it's eternally relevant in, in, in that sense, as long as we have that economic system in place. But I think in, in relation to sports, to me, the the most relevant cases are uh, minor league baseball right now, where you have players making um, barely minimum wage. Sometimes you could argue less than minimum wage, um, where they're not unionized. They have very few rights. They... Um, are, are in, in very precarious positions, aside from you know the, the, the guys who sign for these huge signing bonuses and maybe some guys in AAA who are on the 40-man roster. But you know a, a single-A player just out of college um, has to live with a family, um, has to have a meal allowance just to be able to afford to eat. Um, so I think there's certainly some um, relevance just to the labor situation there. Um, and I mean, and also to be fair, the Players League did not really care about, or at least did not express any care about the lesser leagues of their day or the the minor league players. So uh, it's not like Ward and his compatriots were um, champions for all baseball players or champions for all common workers by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that the second case where it's really relevant is in, in college sports, um, where you have debates around whether these college athletes, particularly in basketball and football, should be paid um, for the work that they do. Um, They are certainly creating millions and millions of dollars for TV networks, um, for these universities. And of course, um, the universities aren't allowed to buy them hamburger unless they be sanctioned by the NCAA. Um, Of course, they're given tuition scholarships and living expenses and that sort of thing. But, but I think that, uh, struggle and that those debates over, um, athletes and the money they generate versus the money that they're, um, paid. I think, I think that, uh, NCAA struggle right now is quite parallel to the, the players league struggle. Of course, there's lots of differences. It's a completely different time. And, 
different structures and different um, sports. But um, I'm hoping, you know, that this book will, if it does nothing else, um, I mean, hopefully it'll entertain some people and inform people. But I hope it also helps people to um, think differently about um, how workers, entertainers, athletes are are compensated for the work they do versus uh, the revenue that they their labor generates. Well, this conversation has informed and entertained me uh, immensely. Um, here's your chance to promote it. So why don't you, uh, in your own words, uh, d- uh, give us the title, uh, the publisher, and, and where it's available and all that kind of good stuff. Sure. It's uh, called The Great Baseball Revolt, The Rise and Fall of the 1890 Players League. Uh, it was published by the University of Nebraska Press. You can purchase it on Amazon. You can purchase it directly from the University of Nebraska Press's website, um, probably Barnes and Nobles and anywhere else uh, where where books are sold. Um, it's a relatively quick and easy read. It's about two hundred and something pages. Um, I loved writing it. I, um, I I'll shamelessly say that I also love rereading it. <laughs> I was just before we we talked, I was rereading parts of it. Um, I think it's it's um, will be a, an entertaining read, informative read for people who are interested in baseball history or labor history or the combination of the two, or who are interested in just 19th century um, American life. Um, there's some there's some drama, there's some action, there's a little bit of color and uh, a little bit of economics as as well, and even some geography. So. Um, yeah, I, I really loved it, and uh, I hope I hope uh, your listeners uh, might enjoy it as well. And again, friends in Hollywood, if uh, you're listening and you're looking for, frankly, something more original than than reheating a, a 1970s uh, sitcom or something uh, and trying to make a <laughs> franchise out of it, um, you know, this is uh, I, I think this is a, a story, at least as as uh, as you know, factually told. Uh, that probably has some uh, some creative license hooks uh, for sure. Uh, if you think about like the 1889, uh, you know, pre prelude to the 1890 Players League season and stuff, you wonder and and can imagine some of the uh, the great storytelling and or uh, drama that uh, or frank, frankly even comedy, I guess uh, that could be uh, brought to bear on that. So I'm sure. Uh, Professor Ross would be very excited to talk to you about uh, the rights to uh, that story and tell you in much more detail. And uh, we highly encourage it. And you know what? I'll tell you. I'll tell you this, Bob. The uh, I am I'm amazed at who listens to this. And as we sort of grow uh, incrementally each week, we haven't really done a whole lot of publicity, and and maybe we'll start ramping that up in the in the months to come. But the um, I, I'm I'm just amazed at how this permeates uh, various sort of nooks and crannies of of. The world, I look at the world map and some of the, the countries that have listened to, to this silly little show, which is pretty mm. interesting to me. But um, but literally, you know, I do get inquiries and questions and queries about uh, certain topics where we, we stumble across something. And I got to think that there's going to be somebody out there at some point over time who might be more interested. And I hope maybe this conversation has piqued that interest or maybe introduced it for the, you know, for the first time. And uh, you never know. So hopefully it'll uh, live on and and maybe some further and good things uh, will come from it. And uh, just remember that I will always get 10%. Just kidding. Uh, (laughs) But Bob, thank you. This has been awesome. I've I've learned a tremendous amount. This has been a a hugely educational but also fun journey. I appreciate your taking time to walk me and our listeners through it. 
Oh, you're welcome. And I, I really appreciate you and, and the show that you've created and, and for inviting me onto it. It's, it's been a true pleasure and honor to, to talk with you. All right, there it is. More interestingness from uh, uh, the world of baseball. Uh, you know, and it's not necessarily the sport that uh, I've been uh, the most uh, uh, passionate about, I guess, in this sort of exploration. Uh, and Lord knows when you go back in sort of the older times, you know, especially the 1800s, I mean, it gets uh, it gets a little dusty and musty and, and you, you know, it's, it's historical. But I, I must tell you that I, I'm probably most enlightened by these conversations. Uh, yes, I love talking to former players uh, of the 70s and the 80s and the 60s and the 90s and, and, and administrators and owners and sportscasters and all that kind of stuff. We got a bunch of those coming up. But um, I'll tell you, going back into these history vaults, um, you know, it seems like it would be somewhat dry and uh, uh, and uninteresting, but it is the exact opposite. And again, the more, you know, we sort of investigate these stories and find out more about them, uh, about leagues and teams no longer in existence, we find, as we said at the top of the show, uh, that, that these, these stories, these themes keep coming back uh, and they're morphing into sort of uh, different versions of things, right? But the idea between players and owners and the strife uh, the various flavors of strife between them. Uh, these are not new principles, friends. Uh, you know, and there's a player's uh, a strike or a lockout or a collective bargaining agreement. Uh, you know, uh, these things keep coming back over and over again. And this sort of the tension between, you know, ownership and and, and the workers, shall we say, uh, you know, is, is something that uh, is as old as labor uh, itself uh, beyond sports, but certainly in sports. And look, the whole Players League uh, of 1890, uh, you know, was it, it probably the first uh, visceral example of, uh, of what would be a long uh, litany of uh, events, uh, dramatic ones at that, between uh, sort of the, uh, the ownership of professional uh, sports franchises and, and the, the leagues that they play in uh, and the players that uh, ostensibly are the talent. Uh, that people pay to watch uh, and enjoy at the highest level. Um, so, you know, in history are lessons, and lessons are uh, certainly uh, well worth uh, remembering when uh, we all think that we, uh, in our day-to-day -day lives, that we're always struggling or stumbling into something new. Uh, the reality is that uh, things just seem to be newer versions of old problems. Quick trivia note here, the uh, only champion of the Players League, I don't know if we mentioned it in our chat, I forgot, frankly, uh, was the uh, this is a good trivia question for your uh, your next cocktail party when uh, people uh, are, are just going to be phenomenally intrigued with your knowledge of the players league was the Boston Reds yes the Boston Reds were the one and only champions of the players league so there you go uh, have an extra drink on me at your next cocktail party uh, when you win the trivia contest with that one all right uh, let's uh, remind you again that the book is called the great baseball revolt uh, it is written by our friend Bob Ross. It is subtitled The Rise and Fall of the 1890 Players League. It is written, sorry, it is uh, uh, on the imprint of our friends at the University of Nebraska Press, uh, who we uh, seem to be uh, relying on a lot lately. And uh, boy, oh boy, what a treasure trove of, of titles that they've had. Uh, we've got a few more of their authors coming up, and uh, we are promised uh, a whole bunch of uh, new titles coming up uh, kind of later on this year. Uh, so our new friends at the University of Nebraska Press, we love 
helping promote some of their books and their authors. And uh, they've been all great conversations. And we thank uh, our friend Rosemary Sakura and uh, her team for uh, all of their efforts in that. Um, you can buy that book, of course, wherever fine books are found. Uh, but we, of course, encourage you to go to our website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, search up the uh, episode number 57 with Bob Ross, and you'll see a whole bunch of links there. You'll see some great pictures and some imagery and some uh, synopsis of the show. Uh, but also, importantly, you'll find a, a couple of links to the book. Uh, and of course, if you click on that link uh, and go through Amazon, uh, we'll go get a few shekels for uh, for your doing so. So that's always a good place, by the way, if you want to check out a book or uh, a CD or a DVD or uh, some other form of media that we mention or promote here on the show, make sure you go to goodseatsstillavailable.com, search up that episode that uh, said uh, product or item was mentioned on, and uh, likely we'll have a link there. And that's always a good way to help support the show. Uh, we always encourage you, of course, to uh, uh, check out our social media feeds in addition to our website, uh, Twitter, that's at goodseatsstill. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Facebook, yes, there's a page devoted to us there. We have not deleted Facebook yet, uh, although we certainly are tempted sometimes. But for now, we have a page there. Uh, so look up uh, Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us there. And uh, last but not least, thank you to our friends uh, at Podfly Productions, podfly.net. And of course, the good, the one, the only good doctor, Jerry Payne, who uh, painstakingly, to uh, stretch a, uh, a word there, does a, a tremendous job in helping put this little show together. We thank you, Jerry, as well as his colleagues, uh, uh, Eric McGay and Corey Coates and David Gregerson. Podfly Productions, check them out. If you want a podcast, the place to do it is Podfly Productions, and you'll find them at podfly.net. All right, I'm done. Thank you so much for listening. Great stuff coming up later in the uh, weeks to come. Uh, stay tuned. Uh, make sure your feed is uh, set to us. And tell your friends to uh, subscribe as well. We appreciate it. We'll see you soon next week, hopefully. Take care, everybody.